This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that has a stratospheric price earnings ratio. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you, mate? G'day, Captain Matt. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. You know that having a high PE means we have, uh, we're very expensive, but don't have much in value, right? Uh, we, we, well, <laughs> we have no earnings. That I know that. <laughs> so if our earnings are zero, I like it. Our PO is in, P is like very high. Thankfully, the price is also zero. So zero divided by zero is it's infinity or undefined. Yeah, you're you're the scientist. You tell me. Well, it's undefined. Undefined. Let's go with that. So undefined. So we had an undefined price <laughs> to our next ratio. God, love a tangent. We're off to one already, but we'll bring ourselves, drag ourselves desperately, desperately back to our agenda because this week we've got a lot going on. We are going to talk about well. I'm not sure how to politely put this. The PEs that are uh, maybe a little higher than we otherwise might have expected, or at least a little hard to explain or understand. We will talk about the concept of going for quality in uncertain times. That was one of the headlines this week. Also, Westpac is raising capital, and maybe it's doing so to, uh, well, pay a fine. I wonder if I could do that. We'll, We'll talk about that a bit later. Also, how important is the right CEO and... The problem with super fund ratings. And if we have some time left over, and frankly, let's face it, we will, we're going to dip into the full mailbag. We are going to answer your questions, take your comments, and hopefully avoid too many of your brickbats. Shall we get on with it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. So let's let's kick off with the state of the market. As we tend to generally speak, we've got a couple of ways to look at this. Um, the first thing that I saw this week was an article on The Australian by Rudy Philippic Van Dyke. Uh, talking about, the, you know, we're in uncertain times now, so the best option is to go for quality. Now, that also corresponds with Woolworths having a PE of, what is it, 30? Close to 30, 34, 30 32. 30. <laughs> let's call now, it just, let's call it 30. So let, let's let's assume it's 30. Uh, and Woolies is, at least to some people's minds, quality in, in terms of its defensive nature, its longevity, its uh, ability to churn out money you know year after year and reasonable recession resistance. So to some degree, okay, maybe that's quality, maybe that's not. But to pay 30 times for a grocer with relatively flat earnings growth, maybe maybe the best thing we can say is that investors obviously have gone for quality and that's why the P is so high. Such is the demand for all these shares right now that the price being paid is is stratospheric. Again, maybe I'll, I'll pull that word out. Mate, <laughs> I don't even know where to go from here. So look, first, first things first. Are we in uncertain times? And if we are, is that really unusual? And then... Is quality really the answer or is that the kind of, is that the easy option? Is that, you know, it's always easy to say, well, things are always uncertain. Okay, sure, always go for quality. Is that particularly helpful? And how should we take that advice? What should we do with that advice? Yeah, so you just asked me the hard questions. Is yeah, that, totally. It's just, what I do. Again, so I got the, <laughs> the hard question, just gave the nice intro and then like I'm on the spot. <laughs> right. um, I'm not sure I like this, but okay. All right, let's break it down. Are we in uncertain times? Um, well, you know, I'll, let's talk about the high PE first. <laughs> So it's kind of. I mean, you're right, but the reason I put the two together was mm. it does, to some degree. I mean, they're, they're two sides of that same coin, right? I mean, the, the whole idea of if you're going to buy quality, and everyone's going to buy quality, then it does push up those stocks. And the, the person worried about it at certain times might say, "I'm going to retreat to quality." You're going to pay up for quality, but hey, at least it's quality, right? So I guess to some degree, I feel like they're the same two sides of that same coin. Yeah, but here's here's another way to think about it, right? So right now, on a trailing basis, it looks mm-hmm. like Woolworths is paying about two point seven percent as a yield, fully franked. Right, that's not bad. Okay, now if yield, I'm not sure. Like you know, do you want to, if you want two point seven percent? I guess you could put your take your cash, put it somewhere, and you know, if you lock it up for like six months or eight months, maybe you can get somewhere, maybe two point five percent, two point six. It's pretty close to what you could get on a. Half long term ish term deposit. Yeah, but don't forget the franken currency as well, right? That's probably three and a half ish by the time you include franken currency, maybe even a little bit more. Okay, but at the, with that, you're taking a lot of share price risk, in the sense that you know people have basically bid this up. It's not long. It's no longer a four four percent yielding stock. True. It's you know a two and a half percent yielding stock. Mm-hmm. Stock has gone up. The PE is thirty four. I mean, the best way to think about this is if you compare this with calls. Um, Coles's PE is something like what sixteen seven. Haven't checked, but you know it's probably. 
close to half. Maybe Many actually. to lower. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, but I'll pull it up here. Uh, so Willie's P is twenty eight for the record, just to to add some accuracy back into the podcast. And Coles is eighteen point six. So there you go. Yeah. So if it fell to eighteen, yeah. Um, you know, the, you're looking at a, what about a forty percent reduction? That would hurt. Um, in the share price, yes. right? So you, you you know, if the first, you basically your capital is down by forty percent at that point. Yeah. Um. So I think. I, th- I think that, to some extent, shows that people are are bidding up prices of quality. But at the same time, people have decided that somehow Woolies is higher quality than Coles. And I, I, yeah. I, you know, I'm exactly not sure how that actually works. That's the bit that confuses me. Like I, I, I mean, I don't necessarily know that. I'll have my view on whether we're at a certain times and how we should respond. But even if you assume that, if you accept the the premise of the question, as the politicians like to say. Um, uh, to your point, like these are kind of peas in a pod, right? Like, yes, yeah, some years are better than worse for coal. Some years are better than than worse for Woolworths. Some some years, you know, one is winning, some of these others are winning. Neither, neither is generally speaking going to win by enough of a margin to have a ten point difference in the PE. Uh, exactly. I mean, you know, in my mind, like these are businesses that you know they're slow moving. They're you know they're definitely defensive in the sense that they're not going to disappear. Right. Or, I shouldn't say they're not going to, but they're unlikely to disappear. <laughs> if if that happens, we've got bigger issues, yeah. yeah. Well, but, you know, they, I mean, there's always problems that they could become smaller over time because, you right. know, somehow somebody figured out something or online, all of a sudden, you know, all your groceries are coming home, um, maybe delivered by drones. And right, then, right, you know, right. um, uh, Woolies and Coles are out there, you know, licking their thumb. Um, <laughs> but, but, I mean, you know, let's assume that, that that doesn't happen. Then, you know, I'd pay like 15 times PE for this business. I, effectively, in my mind, Woolies is like twice as expensive as it should be. Right. Um, so that is definitely in my at least there I'll say definitely um, in my mind a sign that people are paying up for the quality. Right. But maybe people shouldn't. Right. I mean, that, uh, in a way, when you pay up that much, you're taking actually what did you gain at this price? You're effectively taking on more risk. Mm-hmm. Um, what What are you trying to achieve here? It would be my question. Right. Are you yeah. trying to if you're trying to be. Uh, to have a downside safety net, mm-hmm. then buying Woolies at 30 times PE is not that. It doesn't give you that safety net. Right, right. right? Effectively, it actually increases um, <laughs> your downside <laughs> to some extent because you've not got upside from earnings potential. Well, that's the thing, right? Again, if you think about what, you know, why do share prices go up? And, and the answer, there's two ways they go up, right? They go up because earnings increase. Or because people are prepared to pay a higher PE for the current level of earnings because they expect more in the future. Yeah. And if you think about Woolworths' current share price, and you think okay, earnings maybe grow at I don't know what's long term earnings growth for Woolies five percent maybe. No, 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 it's um, zero. <laughs> it's going to be more than zero. Uh, I mean, it, it has its revenue has yes. been static from twenty. We talked about this in another <laughs> podcast, but it's been pretty static from twenty fourteen or fifteen to twenty nineteen. I will take the overs on zero if you're offering me odds. Is all I'm saying. Uh, okay, maybe two percent, <laughs> but I mean. We can look that up too, but you, you know, I, I think yeah. I would even bet that it has gone actually backwards in terms of total earnings. So let's look at you know. We're about the future, here, not the past. So just to, just yeah, to, so just I, to define our terms here. I would think that you know the earnings growth is going to be pretty flat. I would right. I would bet on earnings growth being somewhere in the inflation zone and not much more than that. Right, right. So even right. if we assume that, I mean, again, my, my point broadly is we're not going to get so, so the share price is not going to be driven meaningfully higher on the basis of earnings growth. And on top of that, the other one is PE expansion. When you're already paying 28 times earnings for Woolies, if you're looking forward five and 10 years and saying, uh, is the PE likely to be higher or lower five or 10 years from now? I mean, again, markets can always do anything. They can be rational in the short term, as we know. It's hard to make a convincing case that the PE will be higher than 28 permanently yeah. in, a, in a decade or half a decade, plus or minus earnings growth. There's very, to, to your point, there's very little prospect of meaningfully sustainable higher share prices on any fundamental basis. Again, we, we always say this, you know, markets can be super irrational in the short term. So this could be a $60 stock or a $10 stock in six months for reasons completely outside the fundamentals. But if you just look at the fundamentals of the business and the reality of the current share price and, and, and valuation, very hard to imagine how it gets higher from here. So so I'll just, you know, quickly add that in 2015, earnings per share were $1.83. Mm-hmm. In 2019, earnings per share at fourteen. It has only gone in one direction that is basically backwards. Sure. Now, um, uh, I think analysts are expecting there's there's going to be some earnings growth, you know, maybe mid to high single digits going forward. Yeah. And that's, you know, but even even for mid to high single digits, I mean, you know, would you really be paying 30 times earnings? That's, right, that's right. really the question. Yeah. And, and I, I, t- I understand that, you know, um, 
the interest rates are low, so you know, so the discount rates effectively are lower. Mm. You just, you know, the stock price is going to be higher. All those things are true, but still, it seems like you know, Woolies is is getting a very high premium mm-hmm. uh, for some reason, which just appears a little bit out of whack. In a way, another, you know, to answer your question about you know whether people should buy, people should buy quality if they were buying quality for a little bit of a premium. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, maybe you should buy growth <laughs> because, you know, effectively growth will, you know, help you maybe cover some of some of the ground that you're paying for the premium in terms of the multiple. Yeah. Right. But if you have got no growth, um, if we are calling today's times uncertain, when certain times come, Woolies will be probably worth a lot less because yeah. the times yeah, are now certain. That's right. right? So you actually, you actually want to be counter-cyclical, right? When you're, whenever you're buying stocks, you want to buy something for cheap now that's going to be worth more later. Later, yeah. But paying up for expensive now that's going to be cheap later, as you say, Doc. If if I mean, we'll never have certainty, right? I guess my, yeah. my, part of my point of asking the question was, I think uncertain times is always. There's never been a time when there haven't been uncertain headlines. In fact, the only times you do see certainty return, as you kind of imply, is that. You know, that's that you know, you get certainty in air quotes in two thousand or two thousand and seven. When everyone sees the good news, when the markets are going up, when you can't find a bear for for love nor money, that's when everyone is air quotes certain and that's that's why we should be if not panicking, meaningfully worried, right? When everyone is on the on one side of the seesaw you want to be very, very careful because it doesn't go well from there, generally speaking. And as you say, at that point, you really, really don't want to be paying up for that sort of stuff because, um, you know, when people want to get out of all these... And frankly, that's... So here's the here's the, the counterpoint. If if interest rates are and remain low, we've talked about this a little bit in the past and we don't, we don't want to get into arcane, you know, discounted cash flow formulas on this podcast because frankly, TCFs are boring anyway. They're even worse in an audio format because we can't show numbers or graphs or anything else. But the general academic theory, which is broadly right most of the time over long periods of time, is that when interest rates are low, you should be prepared to pay more for a given asset because in theory, if rates are at, let's pick easy numbers to do it in audio, if rates are at 5%, you probably want to get a 10% return. You want to beat the, beat kind of the average or the, the, the risk-free rate by five percentage points, right? So if I can get 5% in cash, I might want 10% from shares to make it worth my while to take more risk. Now, when rates are at 1%, again, just to keep the math simple, I might still want that 5% of outperformance, but that means I only need a 6% return to beat the risk-free rate by the same sort of proportion. And if you reduce the risk-free rate from 10 to 6, or I'm going to make it even simpler, go from 10 to 5 because it makes my maths easier, then you can actually pay double the price for that same asset because your rate of return is all of a sudden halved. And in that scenario, wouldn't the devil's advocate be, well, you kind of don't need to... You don't, you know, you don't need a low PE in that environment because your rate, your expected rate of return is much lower, and as we've already pointed out, it will be lower for Woolworths in particular going forward. But isn't isn't that a case for paying higher prices for assets like Woolies or Coal shares? You know, I'm going to solve this in a very simple way <laughs> by asking like you a question. I, I ask the questions around here, mate. Yeah, but but today I'm asking you this question <laughs> because you know I'm sure everybody who's listening is interested in the answer to this question. <laughs> here we go. So the question, there are two questions here we go. for you. Two questions now. Two questions now. I'm gonna, am I getting paid by the question? Uh, no, you, well, no, because our P is remember is is, is zero <laughs> divided by zero. That's right. All it's right. undefined, so you can't get paid anything. <laughs> Don't double uh, my pay. Deal. Yeah. Go. Um, I wonder what would happen if Woolies P became undefined. Um, you that's might find back. out. That's another tangent. But anyway, forgetting the tangent, today, yes, would you buy yes Woolies shares? Is it a buy for you? Is it a hold for you? Is it a sell? Oh, it's a sell. Okay. Yeah. Question number two. Yeah. Would you buy shares of Coles? Buy, hold, or sell? So here's... I'm going to give you a nuanced answer, which I know is not what you want. Ah, um, I just wanted a generally, simple answer. Generally... So here's the thing. And this, and this goes to why people buy Woolies and Coles shares, right? So we, all, we know that investing... We pretend investing is economics and maths. Investing is really applied psychology, right? And so why, do you, why would anyone buy coal shares? They would buy them because they're scared of volatility. They're scared of stuff they don't understand. And they feel like at least if they know there's stuff on the shelves that, you know, baked beans and toilet paper and baby food, it's going to be sold yesterday, today and tomorrow and to your point, maybe drones eventually replace it. But for most people who are somewhat nervy, somewhat concerned, somewhat, you know, worried about what's going on, it feels safer to buy shares in Coles than to buy shares in the latest hot fintech because I don't really understand it. I don't know what it does. I don't know whether it goes away or not. And to some degree too, you buy Coles because you want the yield, right? Now, Coles yield, like Woolies, funnily enough, even though the price is much lower, is 2.6% plus franking. So if, if someone out there said, 
I want a low worry, kind of understandable business with a decent, fully frank yield. I could imagine why you might hold Coles. So would I hold it in my portfolio? No, I don't know. I wouldn't hold it. Would I criticize someone for doing it if they had very, very specific needs or desires or objectives that meant they wanted, you know, an understandable blue chip, low worry portfolio? Not to say share price won't be volatile, but just they at least feel okay about owning it no matter what. I can understand why you might hold Coles. That's the long answer. I thought you were going to ask me what I would do. But you didn't. I, see, I would ask the rhetorical questions. Anybody out there really want to know what Doc would do with Willies and Coles? But I'm figuring by now they kind of know. I, I will, just for the fun of it, ask you, what would you do with your Willies and Coles shares, Doc? You know, I would run as fast <laughs> as I could and hit the sell button on Willies. Um, I, I'm, I'm astonished. And uh, you're astonished. Coles, you know, I'm actually in, into my... I might still sell Coles. You know what I think? If, if I had, to, if, if I had to get a blue chip, <laughs> um, you know, one of those boring stocks yep. that I understand, and or I wouldn't say yep. I understand, but you know, that's easy to understand that yep. you know I can see every day. I would actually sell both of these and buy Westpac. Interesting. Yeah. Why Westpac? It's just, I think, you know, on, on the balance of probabilities, assuming that West, well, <laughs> there's always a chance that Westpac goes bush yes, there and is. is gone. Yes, there is. Um, you know, that such things have happened in the past, but I'm assigning that a lower probability. And if that doesn't <laughs> happen, uh, I, you know, I think Westpac might be the stock to own. For the record, I want listeners to know too, we're doing our own sound effects these days. Bush. <laughs> I yeah look so here's and look you know the longer I do this job uh, and the longer I've been investing and the fact the longer I've been talking to people as I said you know I used to think it was maths I when I started doing investing I had I had spreadsheets and spreadsheets mate I had columns and calculations and God knows what I I remember sitting this is is the very old olden days by the way so Excel was around it wasn't quite that long ago but. Um, the internet was was a relative baby, and we'd kind of you know just started. So I had my Excel spreadsheet out, and I would I would get the annual reports in in hard copy back then, uh, and I would open the pages, and I would type the numbers into a spreadsheet, and work out all these ratios and calculations. And did that for a while, and and you tend to get a very myopic view of investing, right? That investing is only one thing, and for it is one thing for everybody, but that one thing is different for everybody. So you know to some degree, that's where for me, you know, is Coles a buyer, a holder, a sell? Well. It kind of depends on, you know, what's your criteria? What are you expecting? Now, at The Motley Fool, most of our services, with the exception of one, um, are designed to beat the market. Our our view, generally speaking, is if you're investing, you want to maximize your returns. And that's absolutely the right thing to do. In that circumstance, I think to your point, you absolutely, you know, do I think you're going to maximize your returns holding Woolies? No. Um, You know, you could, I think, do better owning the index is the next best thing. Or if you can find or get someone to help you find market-beating stocks, and that's the single best way, and that's the way our business is structured, right? We pick stocks for a living. Uh, we invest in stocks for a living. We're trying to beat the market. That's our objective. That's what we aim to achieve. And so there's no point in holding stocks that don't beat the market because by definition, that actually brings your return down. That being said, I do understand that you know people investing for income, for example, and those people don't want to necessarily beat the market if they can get a reliable stream of of tax tax effective income. That that makes much more sense for them. So they're like, I don't want the I don't want the hyper growth stock. I don't want the best thing since sliced bread. I want something that's reliable that I can kind of count on. They may be different stocks, or there are people out there who really really freak out about volatility. I don't want the stuff that's going to go up one hundred percent down, one hundred percent up, one hundred percent down, one hundred percent. Clearly, that's not going to happen because um, if you get 100%, you go and broke. But you know what I mean. There, there are people who would, would happily accept a lower return if they were able to have lower volatility along with it. So, you know, I, I, there are different objectives, different reasons people invest in different stocks. I get why people might own Coles. I, I really, I get why they would have already bought Woolies in the past. But at 38 bucks, man, it's just a tough thing to hold. Speaking of Westpac, though. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, speaking of Westpac, you said you would, you said it was a buy, you think, I think you said last week or the week before that it was a buy. Um, I wonder whether you're going to be taking part in the mooted $770 million capital raising because apparently Westpac had got some bills coming up. <laughs> I, I, you know, I find this... This I find, you know, to some extent bizarre, some extent funny. Um, in a way, you know, when a bank goes and says, "Well, I need to improve mm. my capital buffer, so the amount of equity I need to have um, against all the essentially the liabilities I've got," yep. um, which in this case, for the case of banks, liabilities are actually deposits and things like that. Right. right? Um, you first go to institutional holders or 
you know, funds and things mm-hmm. like that, uh, asking for money, and then you go to your <laughs> retail shareholders. Yep. You know, here's the funny thing, right? You could just cut your dividend. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, not pay out the billions that you're paying out in uh, dividends. But in a, in a way, you're basically saying that to, to pay my dividends, yep. I actually need to take money from you and then give it back to you. Have we talked uh, about this? Because this is one of the more... I, I, it kind of goes back to that applied psychology thing we talked about. I mean, this is kind of one of the, the more... I'm not even sure what the word is. You'd say a surprising, unusual, maybe even very, very rational and very expected. If, if, if on one hand, completely irrational, but that 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 whole idea of like, you know, where where, where does the money flow go? The average punter would happily have their shares diluted to get the same dividends they got last year, even though mathematically yeah. they could accept a lower payout this year, keep the money in their back pocket, and actually get higher returns in future. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this this this. I think I think this beats, but it's not, you know you said the average punter, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's just the average punter, right? Because the stock, because the stocks, a, a big company like Woolly, uh, sorry, Westpac, mm. which is what like probably like eighty, ninety billion market cap off the top of my head, it's not owned just by the average punter, and even if no, it's owned true. by the average punter, it's indirectly owned by the average punter because yeah. they're you know they're in super funds. Eighty-five billion, mate. You nailed it right in between. Well, okay. So, there you go. Well done. You know. So I mean. For that size, yep. it's not the average punter. It is But it's kind of both groups. I think, I think to my mind, that's kind of the story, right? So both groups kind of get what they want. The institutions get to buy more shares at a discount, so they're happy. The average retail shareholder gets to avoid having their, their, their dividend diluted, so they're kind of happy, even though we're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, but but the average institutional holder too is basically mm. paying for the dividends they're getting. Because oh, sure, they, sure. I guess the only reason they hold it is yep. that they want the dividends and maybe some capital appreciation. Uh, the average so probably wants total return roughly matching the market, but they're, they're holding them. They're holding for most of them. They're holding them roughly in proportion to the market cap. Yeah, so so they're basically trying to get some money out of it. Yeah, yeah. some capital gains, some, some capital some gains. cash. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anyways, I find this uh, to be a bit bizarre, but I think what is interesting <laughs> is that the um, the retail placement or the share placement plan mm. um, is now almost likely to, all of that mon- funds are likely to be set aside for paying the fine. <laughs> I love which, is, this. which is not not the stated purpose, I love this. but this this is this is you know. Yeah. It so what, what happens? The numbers aren't too dissimilar. Yeah, that happens. That the numbers aren't too dissimilar. <laughs> at least in terms of predictions, predictions of what the fines are going to be. Yeah. Um, all that said, I think you know. I, I think mm. if one believes that the bank is going to be still around and functioning and kicking, the time to buy some of these mm. things are when you know they're you know down in the. I guess you know they're falling down, and you know they're trying to rise, and they're falling down again, and yeah. you know, that's, that's the time probably to oh, to look into them. I think Westpac's the most attractive of the, of the big four. It's funny too. I mean, there's so much, and this again is the psychology bit, right? So let's say the instos are doing it for the for the dividend, and, and their dividends being undermined by the capital raising. The flip side might also be if Westpac all of a sudden cut its dividend by half for two years, while it, while it kind of saved some money to pay fines and other things, the share price would probably fall by more than the dilution anyway, because the retail shareholders headed for the hills. Mm. And so there's this really, really weird kind of, it's, it, I want to say chess game, it's not, it's not necessarily the right, right metaphor, but there is some element of, you know, would you rather have your shares, your, your, your shareholding diluted by 5% or see the share price drop by 10%? It, it's, it's a weird dichotomy to try and have to deal with. And as an insta, or maybe even as a, as a retail shareholder, if those are the two options, if you know the shares are going to fall because retail investors abandon the bank because the dividends fall and they're going to go by NAB or Westpac or NAB or ANZ or Commonwealth instead. Getting themselves in this position is the problem. Getting out of it is a really, really muddy, unclear kind of range of options, I think. You know what I'll say about this is I think it's easy to blame the the investor. But I would say that this is a condition inculcated by boards over the years, mm. management over the years, right? Mm. So the management basically created, management boards have created this problem. Mm-hmm. It's the beast that they have grown over time, which has become <laughs> like, you know, so big, so monstrous that right. they now can't do it. In a way, right now they're not managing. In a way, what you're basically saying is what they're doing is they're really managing the share price. They're not managing the business because they know yeah. that if they do this, that's going to happen or mm-hmm. they're at least making that assumption that's going to happen and therefore yeah. we should be doing this, not that mm-hmm. and not really thinking about, okay, well, what is best for the Westpac, the business? Yeah, no, that's right. Right? Yeah. And, and you know, and this is a very difficult cycle to get out of, right? And, yes. and a lot of these big companies, um, you know, our big banks are in that same boat. You know, they, they are doing mm-hmm. less of business management and doing more of share price management. Yeah, and, and I mean, and this is this is why my, my kind of stridency of my views has kind of mellowed a little bit because at some point, if you're a business manager, if you're the CEO or chair of Westpac, 
you are trying to run the business on the same token, you're also trying to maximize the worth of your shareholders. And so at some level, at some point, if you know there's two actions you can take and you know the impact or you can perceive the impact of those two actions, at some level, not only do you have an obligation to your shareholders, but frankly, you've got some people banging on the door <laughs> and, and you know who are going to be in the papers and going to be whinging at the AGM if you do certain things. And so you kind of have a choice, right? So yes, you want to run the business and, and their day job is maximize the future earnings of Westpac so you can maximize the future share price. But right now, if you know you've got two choices, if you can either cut the dividend in half or raise capital and you know that cutting the dividend is going to hurt the share price by, and I'm just making numbers up, but 10% and a capital is going to dilute the share price by 5%, and and the the otherwise the impact are the same. You know, again, in a, in a perfectly rational, you know, textbook kind of world, you may choose one of the other options. But in a, in a real world scenario where your job is to work on behalf of shareholders and try and keep your job because the instos are saying you better get the share price up, I can absolutely see why they're doing a bit of both. Should I have nothing to add. <laughs> Let's move on then. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. May we talk a heap about CEOs, about the value of management. Uh, Warren Buffett famously said, you want to buy a business that even a ham sandwich could run because one day, one day they will, that kind of idea. Um, so basically, you know, his, his view is you want, to, you want to focus on the business proper and not rely on brilliance of management. On the other hand, you've got the likes of Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, I mean, ironically, Buffett himself, right? Like these people who have, through their own dint of uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon's another one, um, uh, you know, they have created a, a truckload of value by being kind of, you know, iconoclasts, being, being, being one of a kind who've gone and created massive amounts of wealth, whether it's through technological innovation or understanding of consumers or understanding of investing or whatever those things were, uh, you know, that has been fundamental to those companies' success. And it's, it's an ongoing question, but where do you want to put your money? Now, uh, the, there was an article in the AFR this week and the headline was uh, why the right CEO matters more than ever. Now, that's a very strident, very clear view from that particular writer um but i'm curious as to what you think where do you put your chips when it comes to how important a ceo is to a business you're investing in compared to the underlying business itself and the ongoing sustainability of the company no actually i love this question um because because uh, did you come up with it? I, I did actually. Well, I mean, I stole the headline from the <laughs> AFR, but I but I turned it into a question, so I get some marks for that, don't I? Yeah. Well, you know, okay. Yeah, I love this question largely for two reasons. I think I really love um, businesses run by founders. Right. But I, you know, we recommend a lot of them in extreme opportunities. Um, you know, I own a, a bunch of them that are, are founder-run businesses. Right. But. I tell also, me, tell me why, mate. If you would, yeah. Mind. So one of the things, but I, I was going to qualify my oh, answer. Sorry, I'll yeah, yeah. Qualify my answer, and then I'll answer. Uh, I'll answer that that part. I also believe that I think at a certain scale, it doesn't matter. At beyond a certain okay. scale, it doesn't matter. So I'll give you an example. You you said Steve Jobs. I would say that if you look at the post Steve Jobs Apple. Yep. Tim Cook is one of the most underrated, I know you disagree with this, but he's probably one of the most underrated uh, business managers around. For the record, I don't disagree he's underrated. You've, you've been stronger in your language in the past. Yeah, he's uh, one of the best. I think that they're, they're two different things. I actually, I agree with you. I think he's underrated, absolutely. Yeah, he's underrated. And I think he's one of, when I say one of the best, I say he's one of the best big tech CEOs out there. Right. Um, and, you know, that put, basically puts him in, you know, in, in the same boat as the CEOs of, say, Alphabet or whoever else are out there. You know, he's, right, he's right, done right. a fantastic job. Yep. Now, if you think of the history, you go back to, you know, go, go back in history, he was hired or he was being groomed to take on that job that job mm-hmm. by a founder, right? right? Um, and there are many other instances where founders have found great people to run the business, right? And ideally, if you take the Buffett viewpoint, mm. you know, again, I disagree with Buffett on some things, but I agree with him on, on a lot of things. Um, you, what you really want is, you know, as you want to find someone who's a manager who's going to run the business. Yeah. And in many ways, if, if the manager thinks that this is their business, they're going to run it like that, then it's mm. basically like having a founder owner, but maybe yeah, somebody, right. somebody who's, who's more attuned to management. And, and most of the time, the people who found business are more entrepreneurs and they're not really managers mm. per se, right? And you need that skill. That's actually a really good point, yeah. You need that skill to manage and as the business scales. So 
For I think entrepreneurs handing over at the right time to the right person, person is a really undervalued, underappreciated. It's hard to do, right? It's, it's hard, hard to, to let go. It's hard to work out who the next best CEO is. If you're an entrepreneur, you're probably not the best judge of CEO talent. If you get that wrong, and Howard Schultz at Starbucks yeah. walked away from Starbucks, had to come back a couple of years later because he kind of wasn't comfortable enough. Um, the guys at Google, Jerry Yang at Yahoo, I mean, these guys stepped away and then kind of felt like they had to come back and, yeah. and self-correct the business. It's a really hard thing to do, but it's important. Yeah, it is it's important. But I, I think that the – so I, I think at a certain scale you do mm. need like, you know, um, next, but if you're looking at really small – or smaller end of the spectrum. This is what I was qualifying the answer. Then, you know, or you're looking at businesses that are really still very agile, right? So nobody would say that Apple is very agile. Apple mm. does a bunch of things, but mm. it can't be agile at its size, right? right? right. Um, and and neither would you know a company like Google be agile. You totally. need to, you need to at that scale continue to deliver like you know mm. it's like saying that Woolworths is going to be agile. It's not going to be agile, <laughs> right? And, and, that's, and that's the path of any company, right? You go from agility to uh, hopefully efficient process. Like you, yeah. you have to. That Woolworths can't run on the individual entrepreneurism of its staff of forty thousand people. Yeah, it's got to say, here's what we do. Here's what we think makes us different and special and successful. Yeah, we're going to do this as well as we possibly can. Yeah, systematize that. Hopefully, without bureaucratizing. Yeah, which is, I just made up as a word. That, but I mean, that, that's a that's a skill in itself. But as you say, you can't be agile and big. Yeah, I mean, you still innovate. You innovate at a pace. You know, you don't innovate. But you know, when I'm talking about agility, when I in the smaller companies, mm. relatively, um, you know, unestablished in that sense, mm. these are the companies that need agility. They need to make decisions quickly. They need to take more risks. They need to, you know, quickly trade over those risks. Right? You take risks. You need to very quickly figure out uh, whether this is broken or this is actually works. And then you know, you need to backtrack. Right? That I think uh, yeah, right. the ability to um, put out things that will question the conventional wisdom yeah. and the ability to, you know, say that this is okay, that I'm going to do this and try it out and see if it fails is okay. You know, mm. the, the willingness to fail, it's much easier for a founder CEO, founder, <laughs> yeah, owner, right. co-founder, CTO, one yeah, of those yeah, people to yeah. actually take, make that bet yeah. um, versus for a professional manager to do it. So I think, Small comp- smaller businesses run by professional managers, I think that's, that is where I think it gets hard because mm. they lose some of the advantages that come, come from being small. Mm. So, so I, I really like small businesses that are, you know, relatively speaking, smaller businesses that have founder CEOs because then they continue to be, not all, but many of them continue to have that entrepreneur, entrepreneur entrepreneurial skill mm. uh, that mindset that you need to be agile the mindset that you need to you know sometimes break things to actually win right. um, so that's important uh, but you know I, I don't I, at some you know many companies don't need um, a founder to be at the helm you know if a founder is, at the, is a chairman of the board or mm. something mm. and is just watching you know once in a while from a you know a boat a, a, you know a yacht, yacht somewhere or a, <laughs> yeah. in the Bahamas that is fine in fact it is counterproductive to some extent to have yeah. um, you know a slow moving company run by a founder because they're always trying to say how can I be how can I beat that other company that is growing at X percent because I just want to because I want to own the world right, right exactly um, so I think that mindset difference is really useful so that's, mm. that's how I think about it so a couple of thoughts or a couple of questions actually so Tim Cook right let, let's use the Apple example how far away from a founder does a company get before you start to think about it being risky I mean Tim Cook hopefully has got plenty of years left at Apple but at some point he's going to pass on to someone who in all likelihood probably never even met Steve Jobs let alone worked for him just just by virtue of the generations of companies it's not not necessarily maybe it is the case but you know it's a decent probability that, that Cook's replacement never worked for or with Jobs at some point then is it the CEO is, is it Cook the CEO is it Apple the company or frankly do you start to worry about I know you, you can't countenance this idea but do you start to worry about Apple being a weaker company the further it gets away from Jobs that kind of goes to the crux of is it the company is it the CEO how are you thinking about Cook's successor or, or Cook's successor's successor um, I know we're talking too far down the track but conceptually when you have that that kind of gets to the crux in my mind of that, of that question yeah, so I wouldn't even answer this from a cook point of view. What I would say is, like, you know, I, I look at companies mm. as, I think of companies as having DNAs. Yep. This is what I, I, I effectively believe, that every company has a DNA, nice. has a structure. It's almost like, because a company is basically made up of a bunch of individuals, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you set the tone, the path early on, then you steer the tone and path along the way, right? And um, 
it's a group of individuals, why they were hired, why they're there, mm. is I, th- I think the question that one needs to try to understand. This is, this is you know, this is, this, it's hard. It's not really a science here, but I mean, you know, people who probably work for, say, Apple or work for Woolies or work for, you know, Westpac, they work for a reason. Mm. Or they identify with it, right? So I think as long as the DNA of a company is there, mm-hmm. and as long as the DNA of the company, and you, you think the DNA is in, in, you know, sort of respecting the original, um, mm. I guess, um, you know, the founding DNA in some sense, and you don't really need these people to have met um, the, you know, the founder or the original founder and things like that. I mean, as long as they are people who are steeped in being what is Apple, right, right, right? right. you know, Apple's design company first, a tool maker second, and, you know, then everything else, right? Yeah, and if yeah. you believe in that, and if you if you subscribe to that thesis, then, then I think it's fine. Anybody can be CEO of Apple. Uh, so, and how do you, so, I mean, and, and Berkshire, I would argue, is actually the same thing, right? Buffett's trying to build a business that outlasts him culturally. At some level, though, I mean, there, there's no shortage of past wonderful businesses. GE in its time was a wonderful business. Xerox in its time was a wonderful business. Woolies in its time was a small, nimble entrepreneurial business. Um, they, they, well, in some cases you grow, you must change. And in some cases, the simple realities of, of, of business, of, of people, of change, you know, Schultz himself, as, as we say, you know, he handed off to a CEO and kind of had to come back because whatever he, and I don't want to. I don't want to have necessarily have a, be critical of of, of Schultz, who, who founded or was affected with the founder of Starbucks. Didn't quite found the original businesses, but you get the idea. Um, I mean, at some point, he didn't do a good enough job of either selecting or training or building a culture that he kind of went, "Oops, I haven't. I've left this. I've left. I've left this unfinished. I have to come back." I mean, change will inevitably happen. So, is it is it, it, it may, is it DNA then, rather than either the company or the CEO? I mean, are we, are we looking for does the company still fundamentally? have the ability to be successful in this in this world regardless of that of the answer to that question yeah i mean this is, this is convoluted and hard because right. i mean the person who's leading also has to have leadership quality right i mean that person has to be willing to delegate when necessary take decisions mm-hmm. when necessary um and sometimes it's, it's just the wrong person right like i, I imagine just in some scenarios you pick someone and look schultz was lucky you could come back but if schultz had been hit by a bus yeah and then had a new ceo appointed there was no Schultz to come back and, and take over from Starbucks or or the, the, the Google founders who came back and took over from uh, you know from, from the, the professional management they had for a while and they've now stepped back again just recently. Yeah. But that, that that kind of idea, if they weren't around to fix that, we, I wonder if we're talking about Google in the same language or Starbucks in the same language now. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, yeah. Like, you know, so if, if Tim Cook was the wrong choice and, you know, there was no Steve Jobs to come back, what would happen? I mean, see, I think that that's always possible. I, I think the other thing fundamentally is there are every business you know, I, I think we just have to assume that a, a business can't remain great forever, right? right it's right. very hard to remain great forever, right? Nothing is actually forever. Yeah. Um, I mean, one fantastic example would be like, you know, people would, you know, the the old saying used to be, you can never go wrong buying IBM. Right, right. yes, like, exactly. Like, you know, IBM is a pale version of its original self. Now, mm-hmm. you know, these companies, I think, you know, okay, huge companies don't disappear overnight. Mm-hmm. They don't disappear mm-hmm. easily. They have a lot of, I think, um, uh, what I call margin for error in that sense. Mm. Like, you know, you can make mistakes and hopefully somebody will be able to turn it around. <laughs> at this. But, you know, you there might be years of underperformance that you, you are getting. So that, that is always a possibility. Okay. Uh, sometimes size becomes, you know, all of these companies, you know, talking about Apple, over trillion dollars of market cap. Um, mm. You know, Amazon, over trillion dollars of market cap. Mm. Oh, no, mm. Amazon is less than trillion dollars of market cap. But, you know, Microsoft, over a trillion dollars of market cap. I mean, you know, at some scale, it becomes maybe hard to run the ship and mm. grow the ship. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, how do you go from a trillion right, dollars right. to two trillion dollars? Right. Right? I mean, it's really, really hard. It is. Um, yeah, so, it's, one, it's one thing to take your business from, from you know, yeah, as you say, growing to that first trillion goes from zero yeah. to effectively everyone having your product or using your service yeah. to then double that again. You don't have to necessarily do it in terms of usability or users, but that's a really, really a, tough ask. It's a tough ask, right? So I, th- I think, you know, like fundamentally, I mean, you have to assume, like, you know, that, things can go backwards mm, and that there mm. might be after Cook a leader who's not able to keep the ship together right, and, right. and you know even Cook I mean when you know when every CEO comes what happens is well there are five people who are hoping to become CEO <laughs> right because yeah. you know every board 
would want like i mean any professionally managed company there every board would have like mm-hmm. you know two mm-hmm. or three people as 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 potential contenders to be ceo yeah. one of them is going to be ceo yeah. unless you bring someone from the outside which is what a lot of companies are. but even if you bring someone from the outside mm-hmm. these potential contenders to be ceo the you know the people who are going to be uh, you know when somebody gets hit by the bus are going to be the standing ceo these people yeah, are right. going to be probably leaving right mm-hmm. so there's going to be turmoil so i mean is you know, but does this very similar to what happens in uh, in regular life as well, right? Mm. You know, if people expect something, they don't get expect get that. Yeah, then they, right. you know, uh, they are unhappy, and maybe they decide to move on. Um, yeah, so, happiness is expectations divided by reality. Mate. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, yeah. I think that the, the only thing that's certain is uh, that everything is uncertain. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, that was a good conversation. I look. I'll, I'll throw my just quick two bobs in. I think I actually agree with you for the most part. I, I absolutely agree that uh, I think. We, we like founders because they are generally the people who are A, built the business, who B, have that entrepreneurial spirit, know where they want to take the business, have a, that, that single-minded focus, uh, and, and C, frankly, normally have a large shareholding, at least in portion of their total personal wealth. So we kind of feel like they're probably more aligned. And the data shows very, very clearly that these people are um, uh, t- tend to deliver better results, right? So that, that's also sort of academically supported, at least as much as we can infer data from uh, or infer results from the data we have. To some degree, though, the the company uh, – when Buffett talks about the company versus the CEO, to some degree it's that element of the intangibles that are owned by the existing operating business. And I think to some degree the question remains, you know, we'll exclude the Steve Jobs and the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos because they are kind of, you know, iconoclasts in and of themselves. But if you took a great the, – the guy who – or the girl, as it turns out, maybe, maybe it turns out, the guy who's running Woolies, if you took him and put him in charge of Telstra – or the Telstra guy in charge of Woolies, you know, would they necessarily have the same success or failure in either business? And and a lot of the time, we're we're inclined to put too much store in my mind in the abilities of individual CEOs to either build or break businesses. Um, I mean, it's probably easier to break than build one, quite frankly. But to my mind, existing businesses with kind of professional non-founder CEOs, particularly when they are a couple of generations removed from the original founders. Have have less of an impact on the success of a business than we I think sometimes like to think when it comes to uh, giving people credit or, or or trying to work out success. We're we're too inclined I think to look at that person. And say, oh, that person did a great job there, rather than actually it was the business or the industry or the circumstance or just plain old luck, right? Like I just think that you know the chance that the CEOs of the ASX two hundred are are somehow standout geniuses and and those that are more successful than others share price wise or profit wise. It was because of all their hard work and skill and, and, you know, just personal genius. I think that's way, way overplayed for what it's worth. So I think a founder CEO, I agree with you, Doc. At some point, maybe to your kind of interim point of, you know, that somewhere between the CEO and the, and the company is the DNA, maybe it's just the business itself that's, I think in my mind, probably more useful, more important than the, the CEO or the person who's in the top chair. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, I'm going to talk for a second about, I'm not going to try not to rant. And I'll, you, I'll, welcome your, I'll welcome your thoughts. You're not riding the horse, right? Because I really worry about the horse. <laughs> hey, be kind. You. Be that, kind. That virtual horse <laughs> might be tired. <laughs> it gets copped a, it's copped a fair, fair effort. I, look, I, this is not actually a rant. It's it's a controversial and, and um, alternative opinion to what's in the mainstream press. I have so, no controversy, so I have no opinion. <laughs> I will share it with you. There's a report in this. So we're recording this on Wednesday, the 11th. There's a report in today's papers about the new superannuation fund ratings that are out from APRA. And those ratings take the results of the performance of those super funds and ranks them from highest to lowest and says these bottom funds are terrible, these top funds are great, invest accordingly. And I have a massive, massive issue with that. And I, 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 I'm all for transparency. I'm all for recording. I'm all for understanding who's doing well, who's doing badly. I'm all for that stuff, right? I don't want in any way there to be less transparency in this industry. What worries me is the inference that people make, which is they te- people tend to follow last year's winner. And we know that over the investment universe for years and decades and probably more than a century, it's more likely 
that last year's winners are not next year's winners. In fact, there's a thing called mean reversion, which basically means things tend to move towards the average. And so if you see an outperforming fund, you're actually less likely to get more outperformance from that fund in years three, four, and five than you've got in years one and two, just because things tend to revert. Now, there are absolutely differences. There are the, again, I'll, I'll invoke Buffett, and apologies, Doc, for doing so, but Berkshire Hathaway outperformed for 45 effectively straight years, not every year, but the compound outperformance was phenomenal. If you'd have jumped off the Buffett bus after year five and said, well, there's mean reversion, you couldn't possibly keep doing it, you lost a fortune. But for the most part, most of the time when you see investment success, most people actually end up making less money in terms of their own returns because they jump from you know, last year's loser to last year's winner and inevitably that person ends up going, you know, being shortchanged by that transaction because they end up in a worse position after making the change. In fact, if someone underperforms, again, it's almost the value investing kind of approach to, to fund management choice um, or fund choice, you know, you're better off sticking with last year's loser than trying to jump to last year's winner because of the way that things tend to revert. We tend to get that, that mean reversion, if you like, the reversion to the average. So I just want to be—I want people to be careful. I, the fund ratings are great; they're transparent. But for someone to say, "Hey, here's here's the here's the list," therefore everyone should invest in the top fund. And no one's talking about this, mate. This is what worries me: is everyone from the Consumers Association through to APRA through everybody else are all falling for the line, of, and they're all wonderful people trying to do the right thing. But they're all falling for that line of last year's winners will be next year's winners. And I just think it's a really, really dangerous way to invest. It's a dangerous way to choose your super fund. Now, I will say, for what it's worth, before I get your thoughts, I think to some degree what the, what the ranking does show, what I do like about the rankings is, surprise, surprise, the not-for-profit funds, the industry funds and the not-for-profit super funds have outperformed the ones that charge a fee because the biggest determinant of outperformance over the long term is, guess what, fees. And so if you can keep your fees low, rather than actually trying to chase last year's winner in terms of, of total performance, as in like stock market, stock picking performance, you're far, far better off choosing the lowest fee solution you can find because if there is mean reversion and there tends to be over the fund management industry, the lower fee funds are probably, over an extended period of time, going to come out at or near the top and that's the best you should be aiming for rather than trying to jump from last year's winner to hopefully, or sorry, from last year's loser to hopefully next year's winner by using the past performance as some sort of indicator, some sort of guide as to where you should put your money. How'd I go, mate? That was long. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts though? Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I indifferent? Um, I think you're broadly right. I mean, you, you know, like I mean, last year's performance basically is no, it's not a very valuable indicator. It's, it's right. a, well, it's an indicator to some extent, but it's not, I mean, you can't really um, extrapolate that and therefore, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree that fees, like, you know, most funds, Probably if if you know most of these funds, if they're doing a little bit better than the ASX or just delivering mm. the you know market returns, or you know not if they're you know diversified assets, they're delivering some sort of market return for the uh, for the global market. Then you know effectively, it's like it's like buying an ETF to some extent. You mm. buy an ETF mm. and uh, you buy it at, at a very low expense ratio right. so that you don't lose much. And, and that's the biggest it, differential, right? Is the, yeah. the fees you charge. And and effectively, for you know, for superannuation, one would think that what you really, you're not really, you know, what you really probably want is just some steady compounding instead of trying to hit, you know, trying to cross the fence. And then you know, if you try to cross the fence and you get out, well, that's not going to be nice. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Good point. Should we move on? Let's do it. Good news is, mate. Guess what's coming up? I think it's going to be some nice questions. Very, very lucky. Good choice. Stand by. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. We, we've got one of my favorite questions, I think, ever, uh, from JB, who is John. I don't know what you said. JB, hit us up on email. And our member services team, Aaron, our member service director, sent it through to us. And it starts off, hi, Scott. Love the pod. Among my investing mates, any mention of a doctor is considered to be a near bun these days, which I think is awesome. That is just too kind. But I said, yeah, I said to everyone else on our team yesterday. I said we've got the Edge, we've got Slash, we've got Bono, and the Doctor. Now you are now known by <laughs> by your name far more than your real name. The, the Doctor is in the house, and uh, I, I love that. So that's pretty cool, JV. Uh, he says, "I know Doc is a big fan of the BetaShares NDQ ETF. That's the Nasdaq 100 uh, exchange traded fund you can buy on the ASX. But have you ever looked into the GGUS?" 
ETF from BetaShares. That's GGUS. That's its code. I know you aren't big fans of margin loans, but can you see any advantage in investing in GGUS over the NASDAQ ETF? I assume you couldn't lose any more than you invest, and I'm keen to get some NASDAQ exposure. He asked a second question about my my personal shareholding stock. We'll, we'll hold that one for a second. I'll just get the first one first because um, you'll enjoy the second one. Uh, so these are different products. Hmm. The NDQ is the ASX code. This is the BetaShares NASDAQ 100 ETF. It tracks the performance unhedged, is my understanding, of the top tech stocks in the US. GGUS, G, at least one of the G stands for geared. This is a geared product which is provide, trying to provide you returns that are roughly in line with the S&P 500 plus the value of gearing, in other words, the mm-hmm. borrowed funds. So they're borrowing between $1 and $2 for every dollar you put in uh, with the intention of getting you a effectively a leveraged return, a margin turn, a magnified return of the US S&P 500. So slightly different index bases and a very, very different structure. Given the question was directed to you, Matt, I'm going to happily handball it to you. <laughs> NDQ, the NASDAQ ETF versus the geared US ETF that tracks the S&P 500. So I'm going to you know, first caveat by saying that you know, my thoughts on the geared product are, uh, I just exactly spent five minutes looking at it. So, um, so take that with that grain of salt. But in general, my view is that you know, it's true that the geared product, um, the investor can only maximum lose 100%, right? But there's not going to be no margin call for the investor. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they, they, there are no implications for the gearing on the uh, on on the unit trust um, side, right? So I mean, so if you borrow money with a standard margin loan, your your bank will say to you, or your broker will say to you, okay, you can have you can have this money, but if the share prices fall far enough, either I'm going to sell some of your shares. Or you're going to have to pay me more money. Exactly. Now that's not going to happen with this product, right? But that's almost worse because if the fund starts to implode and there's no need or ability to add more money, yeah, potentially that makes any erosion slash destruction of this product actually faster than it would be if it was a traditional margin product. Exactly. And in, in fact, what might happen is that if this product, if so, the market goes down. Like I mean, in here's one one theoretical version. If the market goes down, this mm-hmm. product is going to be hit hard because yep. of the so you know the 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 basically the margin magnifies the upside and the downside, right? So. Yep. If the market goes down ten percent, this is going to go down a lot more than ten percent. Right, that might actually cause people to sell, right? And you know, and this is not this is an ETF, so it's not really true redemption in that mm. sense. Mm. But I mean, that in itself causes pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, and 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 therefore, this this question is: if there's no new funds coming in, where are they going to actually get funds right, that they right. would need? Uh, to put up. So, right? so they've, they've got to, in theory, pay back their loan. Yeah. They can only do that by selling the assets of the fund, which actually erodes the fund's yeah. asset base faster than it would have been a traditional margin right. product. Now, uh, you know, it might appear to people that ETFs don't, or uh, exchange traded funds don't disappear because they are effectively, um, you know, reflection of other assets. So there are real assets behind it. But I've, you know, I've seen there, there used to be a magnified, um, a margin asset based on the volatility index um, and uh, it, it was from a company called ProShares and it used right. to it used to mimic the VIX which is the volatility index um, one of the volatility index you know and that product on a volatility movement actually basically went past or almost went oh, past okay. because um, you know it, it effectively was was <laughs> got unhinged because <laughs> it you know it that movement was unexpected, right? Right, and effectively they had to close the fund. That particular fund was closed. So oh. I mean, I, I think that's the that's the big downside with the geared product. Now, you know, that's that's my view. Maybe uh, unlike VIX, um, uh, which is the volatility index, which moves mm. could actually theoretically move huge number of percentage points in any particular day. Mm. I don't think the Nasdaq would move that much, but you know. That doesn't mean that the Nasdaq couldn't fall on someday by by twenty percent, thirty percent, or mm. over an extended mm. period of time could fall by that. So that I think magnifies the risk. So I yeah. personally, I you know, again, this is very, this is what I would do, and I would not say that you know what I do does not work for anybody else but me. Um, so you know, take that with uh, take that as what you know what I think. Yeah, I yeah. would buy the 
the Nasdaq 100 over any geared product. The other thing, this is a geared product on the S&P 500. I like yep. the Nasdaq a little bit more than the S&P 500, although I don't mind the S&P 500. I think the S&P 500 mm-hmm. is also a good product uh, because in terms of the diversification it gives you. So, yeah, I mean, my my personal preference is, you know, is, is the NASDAQ 100 NDQ. I, I like the NDQ product um, over the the other leverage product. That's, that's mm-hmm. at least what I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw my thoughts in even though I wasn't asked for them. JB, I, I, I'm... I, don't know whether you don't like me, maybe, or you just don't want to hear what I have to think. I'm not sure, mate. But, uh, but he said, love the podcast. Though. Yeah, I know. Well, you, could have been, you could have asked my opinion at least, couldn't he? Anyway. Yeah. Uh, look, I, Scott, I, tell I, me what you think. <laughs> thanks for asking, Doc. I appreciate it. JB wasn't kind enough to, so you did. That's very kind of you. No, I, look, I I like... I, I just don't like leverage. I, it just, it just it, you know... I'm going to quote Buffett again, mate. I'm sorry. Um, it, it's just, you never want to go back to square one, right? And that's not that's not particularly insightful Buffett logic. It's just world logic, right? And so if if, if something's going to go down fifty percent, and so look, you know, during the GFC, the market went down 45 percent. Now that would effectively mean your investment in this geared product would be down ninety percent, assuming you held it, and assuming frankly it didn't blow up in the meantime. And I have to say, I don't want to cast aspersions on beta shares. They're, they're good people. They're trying to do the right thing, but. Frankly, if something's down 45% plus leverage, and frankly, the leverage isn't limited at 50%, it can be up to 65%, that literally would have blown this thing up. And not not blown up in a, in a you know, well, I mean, it would literally just evaporate your value. You, you you went to an equity value of zero. Yeah. Now, it, you know, if, if you'd have invest, been investing from 1984 in this product, you would have made a fortune from 1984 right through to 2007, and then you hit the GFC and it went to zero, Anything times zero is still zero, right? And so looked at that way, do you really want to go back to zero at any point? I don't think you do. On top of that, timing-wise, we're 10 years out from the GFC. We're 28 years into Australian economic expansion. Um, and that's not an Australian product. But at these points in time, is this really the point you want to maximize your leverage or at least take more leverage on? Am I expecting it to crash the market? No, I'm not. But it'll happen at some point. And frankly, it's more likely after 10 years of expansion than after one year of expansion. So again, timing-wise, it feels a bit... I just, I get I get the, the desire to accelerate your gains. Um, I'm a big fan of getting rich slowly rather than getting poor quickly. So I, I, I think I think not taking that risk. You don't need to take that risk. I'm tipping. And if you don't need to take the risk, don't take the risk. Build, build your wealth slowly without without adding that possibility that if you spin on the roulette wheel of zero, you lose everything. Um, it's it, it just it's a not it's a no brainer for me that the chance of going back to zero is just not worth contemplating, let alone trying to take on it, even if it is potentially with the prospect of greater gains. Now, my JB had a second question. Wasn't says, that for you he though? Says, so he you- says also. Well, you can have a view on this as well. I'll ask you because you were kind enough to ask me. Also, Scott, I noticed you have Gauge Roads in your portfolio. This is a Western Australian-based brewing company, but have never heard you mention it. Are you still bullish? I like beer and investing. Sounds like a win-win. Hashtag Scott and Doc Fridays. I love that. Thank you, JB. Um, Scott and Doc Fridays. We should make that hashtag. That could work. Well, I think you have to Scott you have to popularize that on uh, Insta. On the socials. On, on Insta. the socials. Okay. I've got some Insta questions coming up, mate. Okay. Stay, stand, stand. I, I don't know. Should I be answering Insta <laughs> questions given my uh, the amount of allergy I have to certain types. The good news is, mate, the good news is for me and for you and for our listeners, you love our listeners more than you hate Facebook. Okay, fine. So I figure that's still a win. Okay. Can you give me that one? Yeah. All right. Uh, JB, good question about Gage. Look, I own Gage from, it was a, it was a, I used to run a service at the Motley Fool called Motley Fool Hidden Jams, a small cap service. Uh, I, I've moved on to other services and other people are now running that. Uh, a good mate, Ed Vesely, who has been on this podcast and Chris Copley, who works with him, are in charge of Hidden Gems these days. It's in my portfolio from my Hidden Gems days. I haven't bought any shares in Gage in three or four years, Doc, I think. Yeah, but if you hear about three it almost years. regularly. Right. Well, so here's the funny thing about it, right? It's been a terrible recommendation. We recommended it at, I want to say, 20 cents. Uh, it's down about nine and a half cents at the moment. So it hasn't been one of my shining lights. Um, and so I, I do, every time the shares are up, I tell the guys just because it happens so infrequently and the, and the net result is still negative that I, I just, I'm basically poking fun at myself when I do it. Uh, I never mention when the shares are down. It's just one of those fun things we do internally. Um, well, I think it's fun. The guys probably hate <laughs> it, but I go ahead and do it anyway. So look, I think... Gauge, gauge is interesting. It's not, it's not risk free at all. It's quite, it's very small. Um, I don't mention it because I don't feel super bullish about it. I own it in large part because I always have, and I, I tend to sell really slowly both on our scorecards in my own personal portfolio. Um, I don't know that I want people to rush in and buy Gauge Roads. I think it's got a decent chance of doing well from here. 
it's also got a decent chance of doing badly from here and a, not a, not a non-zero chance of actually going broke. So, you know, it, it, it's the reason the share price fell is because it lost the Woolworths or large degree of its Woolworths exclusive supply contract and it's trying to refashion itself into a craft brewer. Doing pretty well at that, by the way, but it's kind of one of those things where a little bit like Telstra, um, you lose the you lose the fixed line telecommunications business with an 80% gross margin and then you have to try and compete in mobile at a 30% gross margin. It's much, much smaller but growing. And you've got to try and make the mobile business grow and deliver enough profit to offset these losses in fixed line as you kind of lose that really, really big, chunky, profitable piece of business. Now, the... the the Woolies volume isn't super profitable. When I say the, the stuff they brew for Woolies, there's some Woolies specific brands. A bit like, you know, you see the home brand kind of products in the Woolworths Select in the beer business and in the wine business for what it's worth. Woolies and Coles have their own brands. You won't necessarily know it unless you check. Uh, and Gage was brewing and supplying those Woolies owned labels, Woolies owned brands. So in terms of that going away, that's going to hurt not so much in margin uh, in cents per bottle, but there's so much of it, it's so big. It paid for a heap of their fixed costs. It paid for a heap of their overheads. That will go away. And they're desperately trying to grow fast in their draft and their craft business, draft and craft, um, to make up loss. That's the, that's the risk. That's what they're going through right now. That's why the shares actually fell um, and why they've struggled to, in, in a different universe, Woolies didn't pull their volume and gauges making a fortune. I look like a genius, as it turns out. Not so much on this one. Um, there's a decent chance to do well, but if they can't get enough growth in the meantime or their brands don't ring true or don't remain or retain their position in the market, that Woolies growth or that Woolies volume loss, I'm sorry, is really going to hurt. So I, I, look, I still own Gage. Um, I think it's a decent investment, but it's pretty risky, particularly at the current stage. Uh, so buyer beware probably. It's not a formal recommendation of ours. It's certainly not a buy recommendation of any of my services. It has been sold from Hidden Gems. I should actually disclose that. Um, the previous ad- advisor between myself and Ed, um, he actually suggested or recommended that members sell. So it's now not on that scorecard either. Uh, so yeah, one of those ones is a legacy legacy investment um, I did top up with a rights issue at five and a half cents I know it was I think I just bought on market actually five and a half cents so it's been lower so I'm making money on that one but I'm losing money overall it's probably on a I'd hesitate to suggest our listeners buy the shares Doc um, I really don't have a view on on the company gauge I mean um, yeah like I mean you know to me it appears like it's it's a you know if it's a smallish it's like a more like a punt and it's a good punt you know occasion you know yeah sometimes what happens is you've invested in a company that doesn't you know it doesn't do well the shares are down it's too like you know it's too small to bother about it and so it just stays there. it's a good reminder sometimes to have stuff in your portfolio <laughs> yeah um, it's a good really yes. good reminder because it it, it that's true it uh, puts things in context. So <laughs> sometimes I just leave, leave my losers there because you know, oh, it's, it's there. It was one, it was one of the it was one of the uh, Roman Caesars, who uh, I think or, or war generals, who when they paraded through the streets had someone behind them uh, who was there, there. Their entire job was to remind them they were just mortal. They weren't really gods, despite the adulation of the crowds. Maybe that's the role of Gage in my portfolio, mate. Just to just to keep me humble. Yeah. One last question. I think we've got time. Can I squeeze it in? I can squeeze it in. Yeah. Question from Louise. Louise said, G'day Scott and Doc. Love your podcasts and mailbaggers. I would love to invest in some iconic American shares, but I heard you might have to pay it up to 40% in death taxes in the future. What is your take on the various death tax implications relating to shares? Thank you, Louise. P.S. I listen religiously to all your podcasts and find them highly entertaining. She even put five little emoji stars on the email so well done louise thank you very much you're very kind i did respond internally to our little uh, group that we share these things on i said poor louise if she is listening religiously and finds them highly entertaining she's probably got some issues of her own uh but louise hopefully you uh, you continue to find us edu- uh, entertaining hopefully a little bit educational now doc you are our resident u.s investor here i do have some u.s shares and i do have a view on this if you want but your thoughts on the death tax of up to 40 percent if you own U.S. shares, you know I don't actually have a view on this one. <laughs> um, I should probably, but I <laughs> but but I don't. Um, so I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I really don't know what cool. to say. So I do know the answer to this one. At least I know the the story on this one. So it is true that if you do die and your estate sells your shares, um, there are estate taxes that can apply, and the rate is normally between eighteen and forty percent. Now, there's uh, we are we are very much in favour of all of our members and listeners meeting their legal and taxation obligations. 
the question for me and for you and for everyone is probably a fewfold. The first is, um, now none of us intend to die anytime soon, of course. If I was retired and you know closer to the end of an average life than not, I'd be much more concerned about this than I am now. I have a decent amount of my money. I think more than 50% of my portfolio is in US shares. Um, if worse came to worse, I could be up for an estate tax of 840% if I was to pass away suddenly. Uh, th- there are some questions about whether or not the <coughs> excuse me, the um, US government would know that you had passed away and or that your shares needed to be sold and or tax levied. Uh, we would never, and I'm quite serious about this, we would never suggest that people ev- evade or try and avoid paying taxes. Um, so yes, there is, there is the potential if you were to die uh, and your estate was uh, to sell those shares, you could possibly be hit with a, an estate tax of between 18 and 40%, a death tax, if you want to call it that. Um, it's just one of those things. In theory, you also it also does look through any other structures you have, including trusts or companies. That's another way you can do it if you want. Um, so it's one of those, it's one of those uh, situations. I think I'm not worried about it personally. Uh, it is meaningful uh, if you... Um, if you you know if you're worried about that, that is something to think about, something to consider. In theory, it also could, by the way, apply to ASX traded investments, but it's never actually done in practice. So there are some implications, there are some realities about that. If you, as always, we would say, if you want more information, please do speak to a, a tax accountant, tax official. We're not experts. We don't pretend uh, on tax. We don't pretend to know the the full ins and outs of 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 taxes. So yes, absolutely, be mindful of it. Um, you may well be hit with a state tax if you were to die while you hold US shares. Of course, like everything, you want to be trying to make sure that you're maximizing your returns. And so at some level, um, we would always say you want to maximize your after-tax returns, not minimize your tax. And that's, a, that's an important difference, right? It feels like the same thing, but people do things to avoid tax all the time. Uh, I think you're actually better off, you know, the old line, I, I hope I pay a fortune in tax over my lifetime. I hope I pay millions of dollars in tax. I hope I pay tens of millions of dollars in tax in my lifetime. If I'm if I'm that good, that lucky, that successful, that rich, well, you know, it's a nice problem to have. Um, so I don't mean that flippantly, but again, try and maximize your after-tax returns. I'd rather I'd rather make $10 and pay five in tax than make a dollar and pay nothing. Doc, your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, th- I think I broadly agree with... Uh yeah, like, you know, if I made a lot and I paid some in taxes, I wouldn't complain at all, so. Very good. Mate, we've uh, run out of time. The good news is we've got two weeks of mailbag coming up. So you're off on holidays, and the good news for our listeners, hopefully, is we have a heap of mailbag to get through and a heap of time to do it. So next couple of weeks, we'll be hitting you up with a couple of mailbag editions that should take us up to the end of 2019. So please stick around. Keep sending us your questions. Uh, if you do send questions next week or so, well, you won't get them answered super soon because uh, Doc's going to be away. We will get to them absolutely. So do keep sending your questions and comments in. We love them. Uh, I am letting people know as they send them in that we might be a little bit delayed in getting the answers to you. Uh, but frankly, if you'd rather have your own questions answered than listen to us rave about stuff that we think is important, and frankly, you probably do, uh, hit us up and let us know. In the meantime, our listeners can subscribe and they should to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars is preferred. Leave us a review. You know the drill. Our uh, US colleagues were actually talking, there's, there's some US podcasts as well that our Motley Full US team do, and they were talking about asking people for reviews and ratings. And I thought to myself, we probably don't need to do that, mate, because we never do that. And it's you know, well, something that we regularly ask for. So, you know, don't have to give us ratings or reviews if you don't want to. If you hate this podcast so badly that you just hate listening right now and you don't really want other people to find it, then fine. Don't leave a rating. Don't leave a review. But if we're adding some value, if you do want other people to find it, and hey, why wouldn't you? We are the number one podcast in the country, number three podcast in Hungary. I have a, I have a, a name, Doc. That's a massive tangent. I want to be number one in Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein? Yeah. Why not? Exactly. That's what I figure. Why not? In Monaco. I, I, I want to be number one in Greece. And, and I was watching an old, old episode of The West Wing yesterday, and there's a place called the Federated States of Micronesia. I want to be number one there too. Okay. Well, what's wrong with Papua New Guinea? Nothing. Let's go be number one there too. All right. Let's do it. Now, listeners, you are resp- if we don't get to number one in PNG, all I can say is shame on you for not giving us a rating. Exactly. Us a I second that. <laughs> Don't forget you can and you should get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish mailbag insight. Fool on. Fool on. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.